This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, there is some good news this morning for traffic through the Suez Canal. That giant freighter called the Ever Given has been partially refloated in the last few hours. There is hope this will at least allow some of the backed up traffic to potentially get moving again, but there is still more work to be done. They used the high tide of the full moon and a lot of tugboats to push and pull. Uh, so they did get a, a little bit of progress done there. And it has been almost a week now of blocked traffic in the Suez Canal, and that bottleneck is having an impact all over the world. For more on that, we're joined now by Ofer Barron, who's an economist at the University of Toronto. Thank you for joining us. Hi, good morning. Thank you for hosting me today. How big of an economic impact is this having? What is being hard hit at this point? Well, uh, I think the easiest uh, way of measuring this is by some estimate that there is about uh, $10 billion of uh, merchandise that is being stuck uh, currently and is not moving. Ten billion dollars. That's a lot. So are there particular areas like is this a European problem? Is this a Middle Eastern problem? Where where is it being impacted? Yeah, so the first order impact is as you said in European uh, countries and uh, Middle Eastern countries and probably uh, some other uh, countries that are uh, along the Indian Ocean which are the most heavily uh, users of the Suez Canal for uh, transport between those uh, two centers. So with all that traffic back up there, what is this doing for shipping traffic, which from what I understand is already in bad shape around the world? Yeah, so uh, try to think of an accident uh, during rush hour on a highway, right? So we are in rush hour in terms of global shipping around the world. Uh, COVID has hit hard and only now some countries kind of uh, the economy started moving forward with uh, vaccinations and so on. Uh, so it's, it's busy. And then uh, suddenly there's a huge uh, a vessel that is basically stopping everything or, it, you know, in a, the Suez Canal is responsible for about 10 or 12 percent of the global uh, shipping. So you, you cut a lot of your uh, capacity here, you block it. Uh, those delays, we already felt them in terms of increasing uh, oil prices and uh, we may feel them with uh, increasing prices for uh, other merchandise, despite the fact that we are in North America and not um, in uh, Europe or the Middle East or um, Southeast Asia, because we live in such a global world. One route responsible for, you said, 10 to 12% of the world shipping? Uh, yes. That's a lot. Do we need to have backup plans? to make, like, I know it's rare that something like this happens, but this clearly shows us it can happen. Yes, it can happen, and you know, just like uh, any other thing, there is a lot of uh, trade-off here. If uh, if it happens once in a hundred years, we can probably uh, deal with this without having a second uh, canal. If it happens every year, we need a second canal, right? So uh, life is somewhere in the middle. Those are not uh, simple uh, infrastructure projects. Uh, and uh, they are, even if we'll start with building an, a new canal now, this will take uh, a few good years until it will be in service. I think in the meantime, um, the pilots that are helping ships uh, move through the canals would probably be significantly more cautious in the next uh, few months when they are uh, 
on top of such huge vessels as the Evergreen. Right. So do you think that means that they will be a little bit slower, perhaps, traffic through the canal as they're trying to be extra careful? So it doesn't sound like the situation is going to get fixed soon. Uh, yeah, I mean, think uh, think of yourself driving on a, on a winter day and uh, pressing the brakes and, uh, you know, the car doesn't exactly what you want and you find yourself in the shoulders. The next time you drive significantly slower. So I think that's what happens here at the this vessel went a little bit faster than is necessary. Weather wasn't great. A uh, gust of wind came and kind of moved it enough to create. That is Ofer Barron, an economist at the University of Toronto. This is Mornings with Simi. There's been a lot of controversy around the issue of masks and having a mandatory rule for them in schools, particularly in Surrey. But now things have changed. There's a new mandate that applies to children from grades 4 through 12. And this is a pretty big change from what we had seen previously. And of course, today is the first day back to school after spring break. So there's a lot going on. Let's talk to Matt Westfall, the president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Simi. All right. How did you feel when you heard about these new rules? I was very happy to hear it because it's something we've been calling for all year, basically. So it's been a long time in coming. Uh, We felt it's overdue, but we're very glad to see it in Surrey and we're hoping that it will go beyond Surrey. All right. So what do parents and students need to know starting today? Uh, The two big changes for the masks are, first, if you're from grade 4 to 12, you have to wear masks at all times in indoor spaces in the school, whether you're elementary or secondary sitting at your desk or not. And that's a change because before now, elementary students never had to wear them and secondary didn't have to wear it at their desks. The other change is that for kindergarten to grade three, masks are now strongly encouraged, whereas for most of the year, it was not recommended. And then it became, it's up to the parents and now it's strongly recommended. And we hope parents will take that up. Right. And what do you think changed? Like, why now? I I have to think that, I mean, I know that there's been a lot of advocacy by the school district and I think by Fraser Health as well, because they're very concerned with the very high numbers of cases and increasing numbers in Surrey. Uh, I have to think it must be the variants uh, of concern that are just rising rapidly as well. Like, are you worried about heading back to school? Or what have you been seeing in the community during spring break? Uh, I've seen a lot of apprehension from teachers about what's been ha- what's going to happen after two weeks, depending on what people have been doing and if they've been mingling or not. Uh, but there's also, with the announcement about vaccinations last week, that was a real boost for people. That, where some of them, one teacher said, I've, for the first time this year, I feel like someone actually cares about me and my safety. So that, that definitely, I think, is helping with confidence. But not everyone's getting vaccinated. Children aren't. And it's going to take a couple of weeks before they'll be effective. Right. So that's going to be for a tense couple of weeks in Surrey schools then. Do you think the message is getting through to parents, Matt? I, I certainly hope so. I mean, they've, everyone's doing their best to get their message out to them. Uh, we'll have to see how the first few days go. It's going to be an adjustment for some, uh, some parents and some students. And also, there are some parents who are opposed to their having their children wear masks. So there's going to be some things to work through for sure. Yeah. How are, what's your advice then for teachers having to deal with those kinds of situations starting today? I would say we want to start, we don't want to come in, uh, you know, too hard at first because it will be an adjustment. I think the districts ordered more masks because they're going to need more. I think it's probably most for more for administration to deal in the district to deal with issues with parents. 
Right. So obviously the kids are going to have to listen to teachers in the classroom. Is there enough, do you think, protection now with these new rules? Uh, uh, I, I would have I rather it had been mandatory from kindergarten up instead of just strongly encouraged because I think that that's one measure. And the, the bigger thing is I'm really concerned for colleagues who are outside of Surrey. So if you're in Delta, just on the other side of Scott Road, you don't have any different protections than you had before or in Vancouver. And so I don't really see why this hasn't been expanded beyond Surrey as a precaution, given that, you know, what's been happening with our case numbers. So explain to me the difference. So when you say strongly encouraged, that's what it says now for K to three. What kind of strength does that give a teacher then? Does that mean they strongly encourage parents to have children wear the mask? Or can teachers say, you have to wear it in my classroom? I would say strongly encouraged means it can't be mandatory. So if a student won't, or if a parent won't, the, the teacher and the school aren't going to compel them. Uh, I don't think it's going to change much from the, for the teacher's perspective because teachers have been. I mean, I know one kindergarten teacher who says all of her students wear masks all day, and that's through working with the students and the parents. Right. Uh, so that's uh, so from the parent's perspective, I think parents can be reassured that there's no harm to their child from doing it. Whereas before, if it said it's not recommended, that was really taken right. as don't do it. This is the thing that I don't understand about this, right? Is that you, they, you could have had kids wearing these masks before, but what, did people just need to have the rule? I think so. I mean, uh, you know, masks aren't pleasant to wear. So some people, if they don't have to wear them, they're not going to. Uh, and this, I've, some colleagues have said, well, often the younger students can be more, they buy in more, whereas say a grade six or seven student, they, they see the news and all that. They say, actually, you know, I don't have to. So, so you can't, and you can't make me, and they're right. So I think having a rule does make a difference uh, for the grade four and up elementary students. Okay, so starting today, then parents should know, you know, send your child to school with a couple of masks. Yes, absolutely. If they don't have one, then the school will provide one. But, uh, but yes, please do that. And, and if your child is from kindergarten to grade three, please send them anyway. Let's keep everyone as safe as we can. Yeah, let's do that. Matt, thank you so much. And listen, best of luck. Thank you very much. Matt Westfall is the president of the Surrey Teachers Association. New rules in the Surrey School District today. This is Mornings with Simi. So what has changed? Well, variants in a word, uh, spreading faster than we can actually keep track of them. The, the number today I would expect will be high. What kind of an impact is this going to have on our hospitals? Joining us now is Dr. Sally Otto with the UBC Department of Zoology, who has been looking into this. Dr. Otto, thank you for joining us again. Absolutely. So what have you been keeping track of here? Are you watching these hospitalization rates? Yes, and and the vaccination rates and the numbers of B117. And we have a lot of information from other places, from many regions in the United Kingdom and Denmark, United States, other countries, about how much faster B117 transmits. Than the previous variants. So we're seeing this in Ontario right now, right? With the intensive exactly. care units filling up. That's right. And I think we're a couple of weeks behind Ontario. Our numbers of B117 are a little bit lower, but that's just a couple of weeks. It's not a game changer. We're going we're gonna to see this very same pressures on our hospitals and ICU as Ontario. All right. So given what you know and how you track things, then Dr. Otto, what is the pattern you're seeing here in BC? Um, Well, it it is a little bit hard to tell because the numbers, as you were suggesting, are um, in flux and they're not, uh, we don't exactly know how many people are tested and how 
what fraction of them are B117. But given the numbers that we are getting, we're seeing them doubling every eight, eight to 10 days, which is pretty much what we see in other districts as well. So what would that mean for our intensive care units and our hospitalizations? Yeah, exactly. And the question that I wasn't clear without a model was whether or not our vaccine rollout would be enough to kind of stem the tide. But the vaccine rollout is just not enough to um, make a dent in um, the spread of B117 yet. By the time we get to the summer, it's a different story. But until then, we uh, will see... um, should expect to see doublings of B117 and looking at the number in the hospital and the ICU within the next two weeks by mid-April, um, uh, we will exceed the numbers in ICU that we've had um, for the COVID up to now. Listen, that's that's bad news for us. It is bad news for it is bad news for us. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it is like I and so do you? Is it time to crack down? Do you think? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I uh, um, it was it would have been great to have kept B one one seven out of the province because that's what buys you time. At this point, we're going. To, I I don't see any other recourse than increased restrictions, especially restrictions out indoors. I I think that the restrictions may continue. We may be able to continue to meet outside. It's the indoor transmission that's the worst. Right, but given what you see. Is, yeah. Does something have to change? Absolutely has to change. We, our hospitals won't be able to um, to make it through April. Okay, so when you look at you think April, like what is it, the next couple of weeks? Is it two weeks we start to really hit a problem? Where do you see that happening? According to my projections, by April 1st, we'll, we'll have reached um, the worst number in ICU, which is about 100. And by April 15th, we'll be at um, capacity, which is, I think, around 350, according to the news releases that I've seen. Okay, that's only three days from now. No, sorry, April April 15th. Oh, yes. April 1st is only three or four days. Yeah, I, yeah exactly. And and there's maybe some wiggle room because, as I said, we don't know exactly how many B117 there there is uh, in the province. For example, last week, the numbers reported said 3%, but Dr. Henry said there were in the high teens to 20%. So there's a little bit of uncertainty about where exactly we are. But when you have doubling trends, there, that might buy you a, a few days back and forth, but it's not going to stop this kind of rising right. spike. Dr. Otto, do you think that we just, the messaging was, wasn't direct enough with people? I feel like we were trying to have it both ways, right, for so long is, oh, you know, we just need you to be good for a little while longer. And people just took that as a, oh, things are getting better and I can start to behave like I did before. Yeah, and I think there was just, there is, I am so hopeful about the vaccines. Um, it, it really takes crunching the numbers to, to see that the vaccines aren't, aren't coming out fast enough. Now, I have to say there's, there is a little bit of good news. Uh, hospitalization and ICU numbers will um, max out, but um, we um, are seeing fewer deaths, and the number of deaths projected forward um, may not rise to as high a level as it's peaked at before. And that's because of our prioritizing the vaccinations for those most likely to die. So are you worried? Yes, I'm worried. I'm worried for our community. But on the other hand, I've seen BC come together. I've seen us really change our behavior very quickly. I know we can do it again when we have to. And I think um, that's not going to be too long in the future. All right, Dr. Otto. Yeah, we're going to have to. Thank you so much for your time.
You're welcome. Dr. Sally Otto is with the UBC Department of Zoology, and she has been tracking these variants and doing some predictions on this, and she can see the rise in the variants and the trajectory that is the impact that's going to have on our hospitalizations. Critical mass in about two weeks' time here in this province. Something is going to change. This is Mornings with Simi. There was a lot of news over the weekend. You may have missed, actually, what was also going on in Strathcona Park. On Friday, there was a very large fire that happened there. Propane tanks that had exploded, uh, some dog attacks, and it was a fatal overdose of a 22-year-old woman. I mean, this is these are all things that have happened in Strathcona Park recently. Now, we've repeatedly heard that this is a priority for the city, for the province, for the park board. But why is it that we can't help the people there find a better situation? Why can't we find the solution here? Well, joining us for more on this is Vancouver Park Board Commissioner John Cooper. Good morning. Thank you for being back with us. Good morning. Thank you, Simi. What happened on Friday? Do we know? Well, uh, we saw some. We saw a fire. We've seen a number of fires. You know, we've seen tragic death again in the park. Uh, we've seen just mayhem down there. And, uh, you know, I... I saw it on the news. I, I saw Paul Johnson, a global reporter, who was actually prevented from entering the park by the camp leader, uh, Chrissy Brett. Uh, another camper was threatening him with a with a two-by-ten. I mean, what is going on in Vancouver? I mean, I just, you know, you get, I think the media would get better treated in a war zone uh, uh, on the other side of the world. I mean, this is about freedom of the press now. The This, this is not... This has gone beyond homelessness. This is a really serious health and safety issue for the, for Vancouver and the community of Strathcona and the chair of the park board and the Green Cope Alliance have been silent. So when is the next time this is going to come up at the park board? Like, does this fire mean that, yeah, this is going to have to be talked about? Well, the park board, after almost two years, finally gave the general manager authorization to seek a Supreme Court injunction when the conditions were right, and that was really resolving around having homes for everybody. But in actual fact here, we've got a situation where, yes, there are people that need help and are homeless in that park, but there is a large and growing criminal element. It's clear from the bike chop shops, um, you know, it doesn't require really anything more, I think, than a, than, a, than a movement to say, look, enough is enough. We have to clear the park for the public safety of the community. And um, it's beyond a homeless issue. It's really a health and safety issue. Isn't this the month when it was all supposed to start happening? Wasn't April where we were supposed to start seeing some changes happen? Yeah, our staff have been working hard. Kudos to them. The park board staff have been, you know, moving and remediating parts of the park but what's happened is we've actually got even more of a concentration in one area and right now it's kind of backed up against the um, cottonwood community garden which is used a lot by the community this is kind of the start of planting season and uh, that's where the dog attacks took place Uh, you know i was down there on the weekend uh, myself to just have a look i didn't go right in because obviously uh i didn't want to have a confrontation with with Chrissy Brett, the camp leader, and that's another story. I mean, how is it that this individual has so much power in our city and uh, I'm told is going in and out of there from time to time with a taxi and hard-sided luggage, so I don't know what the whole story is there, but something is off the rails. Okay, but clearly something needs to change. Do you have 
faith that that is about to happen. Like people need to find homes, they need housing. We've heard David Eby say that the process is underway. Do you feel like, do you have confidence in that process? I feel there is a process. Um, Honestly, at this point, I'm not particularly confident because of what we've seen as this hard core group that seems really reluctant to move in any circumstances. So I think it's going to, it's going to require an injunction. It's going to require, um, you know, that part to be cleared. And, and it, you know, whether it happens now or a month from now, it should happen now. I mean, come on, it's, it's, it's absolutely off the charts. You know, we not only propane tanks uh, in the, in the global, uh, report there was um, uh, acetylene acetylene with tanks which are used for welding down there those are those are very highly explosive when mixed with propane um you know it, it's <laughs> you can't have people playing in a field next next door separated by a metal fence and have explosions going on and think those metal fences are giving any kind of protection to the community is there anything that you feel the park board can do right now to improve the situation well, Tricia Barker and I, the two NPA commissioners, are calling for an immediate um, uh, injunction and a clearing of the park, and I think that that needs to be done. Uh, we've done it before, in the, you know, almost ten years ago, when there was a, a, a vision, and the NPA were on the same board and agreed on this. Uh, we were in a minority then at that point, but at some point you have to say, okay, enough is enough. And I think, uh, you know, where's the mayor? I mean, you know, he's not, he's got nothing to say. I haven't seen him. He's tweeting about climate change decisions. The park board chair, the same thing. Camille DeMont has not had a, anything on social media, and from what I understand, the park board chair has not been ready to face the media. I, Paul Johnson tried repeatedly to get a hold of him on on Friday, and, uh, you know, so it's it's Tricia Barker and, and I, the two NPA commissioners, are the only members of the board that are actually speaking to the public on this. It's shameful. So it sounds like then, like, yes, we're, you can be angry about it, but nothing is going to change, at least for the next week. You have no indication that Park Board is going to be addressing this at all? I have no indication of that. I can only, through, you know, you having me on and getting people aware of it, I think they should write to PB uh, commissioners at vancouver.ca, two M's, two S's on commissioners, and let, let, let them know that uh, you know, the public is not happy with this situation. How this has gone on this long is 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 beyond me. Well, Mr. Cooper, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Simi. It's John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner, talking about the large fire on Friday. I mean, the picture is just... It looked like uh, it looked like a like a wildfire almost, but they got that under control. But clearly, lots of issues and problems down there. Uh, people wanting to see some progress in helping people get housed, and you know, getting that park rehabilitated. This is mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what happened in North Vancouver over the weekend, just that horrifying incident that unfolded on Saturday. You've been hearing about it in the news. One woman has been killed, six other victims recovering in hospital after being stabbed. A man has been charged with second-degree murder. More to come on all of that. Uh, Normally, we talk to the president of Insights West about some polling that Insights West has done. But instead, this morning, we are talking to Steve Mossop because he was there on Saturday, and we want to find out what it is that he saw and what happened. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show, Simi. This must be so difficult, I know, for you to think about what happened on, on Saturday. You, you just happened to be there? 
Wow, it was a whirlwind. We were driving home, which we lived just a, a two blocks away from the from the crime scene, and we saw a woman that was waving her arms, and she was covered in blood. And we said, "We have to pull over. She's nobody's helping her." There was quite a few people on the sidewalk, but they were all stunned and sort of shell shocked as to what happened. So we pulled over and assisted her. She had a, probably a six or seven year old son, and uh, the folks in Browns uh, opened the doors and and we managed to get her sitting down and make sure her son didn't get lost in the crowd. So that was sort of the first introduction. At that point, we didn't know what had happened other than there was a, a man who attacked her. And then uh, we turned the corner after that, after she was safe, and realized there was a victim right there as well who was being attended to a man. Uh, she had multiple stab wounds in the face and the arms and hands. She, uh, she was coherent, but um, the man had taken off his shirt and was uh, trying to stem the bleeding. So we had happened to have a couple of beach towels in her vehicle parked right beside it. So we took those out and assisted her. Um, and at that point, we realized there was multiple victims and you know, people were shouting that there's more victims around the corner and so on. So it was a very chaotic uh, first several minutes as this all unfolded. It sounds like it. It also sounds, though, Steve, like people immediately jumped in to help. Was that your sense of things? Um, maybe not, because we were standing there or, or we were driving by and very quickly pulled over. And this woman was waving her arms and there was nobody there assisting her. And she was on the phone calling 911. So we had called and, and tried to calm her down a little bit and tell us what had happened. Um, but there was a lot of onlookers that were just uh, standing there almost shell-shocked. And there's a few people out with phones recording what was happening. Um, but the other victims, yes, the people were attending right away. And there was right after that, there was a massive kind of outpouring of, of support for people in distress and, and the people who had watched uh, the unfolding of, of those events. I guess this is not something you ever, you just, in shock, I can understand. You just don't expect to see something like that. No, and, and at that point, after we found the second victim, we had heard very quickly that there was at least three or four more. And we didn't know how many after that. So what immediately transpired after that is we were, me and my partner, Rhea, we were uh, running down a parking lot, basically warning people that there was a, a man with a knife and to be careful and, and take cover. Um, and we were also looking just uh, at the same time for uh, my partner's 14-year-old daughter who wasn't answering her phone and was in the immediate vicinity. So we had this terrifying 10 minutes where we were looking for her frantically. She's okay. Yeah, she happened to have left the area just moments before. Oh, wow. And so, but for those 10 minutes, we were looking for her and basically going up to the various victims to make sure it wasn't her. You know, as a parent, you just... uh, you freeze yeah. at that moment. So it was, it was quite scary to that, that, those few moments. And at the time, we also, we had stumbled across the perpetrator who was already down on the ground surrounded by police officers, but we thought he was just a victim like everybody else. So wow. I, I, you can I, imagine this carnage of, you know, a block and a half long where there's victim after victim, including this man on the ground, which we thought was a victim at the time. Oh, just the story. I can't even believe it when you describe it that way. Um, Steve, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. We appreciate You're your welcome. time. And listen, best of luck, and thank you for pitching in there. Uh, we also want to talk right now with Mike Little, who's the mayor of the District of North Vancouver, and he joins us this morning. Mayor Little, thank you for being here. Yeah, good morning, Simi. How is the community doing this morning? Well, I think uh, people are still reeling from it. It was so unexpected, and it's in a place that uh, uh, is is really about 
calm and family friendly and safe and secure and and it was just absolutely shattered uh, and so I think people are still a little bit in shock. Is there something that will be done to help the community kind of grieve collectively? People usually like to have a moment, right, where they collect themselves together. People have been showing up at the scene and dropping off flowers and expressing uh, condolences to the uh, to the victims and also appreciation to all of the emergency personnel. That happened throughout the day yesterday, and I understand this morning as well. Um, you know, it's, it's going to take some time. Uh, we have obviously with, uh, some of the COVID restrictions, it's difficult to do a big community gathering and get together, but I do anticipate we will, we will prepare an opportunity for people to come together, uh, coming up soon. Uh, how the community, I understand they must be dropping, as you said, a, a lot of things off there. Uh, give me an idea of what that neighborhood is like. It's a single-family neighborhood. It's uh, largely, a, we've been developing the town center there, but still it's predominantly single-family. Uh, and the, the the plaza itself, I was saying the other day, you know, that's where we, we give out our summer reading club medals to the kids and stuff. It's, it's a very family-friendly space. Uh, and uh, immediately next to it, I mean, there was a used book fair going on. Uh, people, it's uh, a place of... of calm and and community gathering and and so uh really really not what was expected are there any is there anything in place to help people if they need to talk about this or if is there assistance for them well it was great to hear steve's account of what uh, what he witnessed there but uh you know there's a lot of people that uh, witnessed uh, the event or uh, or just really have a heaviness about the event and we're encouraging people to reach out to um, to friends to talk or to professionals to talk. We've been promoting the RCMP crisis line uh, as a way to communicate. Uh, but, you know, the, the stress of this kind of a traumatic event can manifest over a few days and people don't um, don't realize it's uh, affecting them that way. And just on, on top of all of the COVID uh, uh, restrictions as well, we think, uh, you know, people are, are very, very stressed at this time. So, so we, we will be making additional resources available. I know the Canadian Mental Health Association has reached out. I know our North Shore Emergency Management Office has resources that will be available on scene. Uh, and also the uh, RCMP had their, we had a TransLink bus come in uh, so that there was a warm place for people to sit down and talk with counsellors um, at the scene. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and we will continue making those services available. All right, Mary Little, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Mike Liddell, District of North Vancouver Mayor, talking about what happened. The stabbings over the weekend left one woman dead and six others injured and in hospital. This is Mornings with Simi. So much going on out there today. Big story, though, has to do with a lot of kids returning to school today. It's the end of spring break in many districts. And in Surrey, that also means new rules. As we've heard, students in Surrey from grades 4 and up, so 4 through 12, are now required to wear masks in schools. That's a pretty big change from what had been the case just a few weeks ago before spring break. And from K to grades three, it is also strongly recommended. This is something that teachers have been advocating for for months now. Joining us now to talk more about the decision is the president of the BC Teachers Federation, Terry Mooring. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. All right, so you must be pleased to hear that this is finally going ahead in Surrey. 
Well, I'm, I'm pleased that there is a mask mandate, you know, in place at, at long last. It aligns with the provincial, what the Provincial Health um, Agency of Canada has been saying since August. And, you know, we've been advocating since September. And so I would say this is a very long time in coming, and it needs to be expanded. Looking at the numbers, uh, in, you know, in terms of the COVID cases, uh, the number of cases of the variants of concern, uh, this mask mandate needs to also be expanded across BC. Uh, you know, we think that had it been in place earlier, there could have perhaps been uh, some, you know, prevention of some of the cases that have occurred in schools. And so, you know, while it's good news for Surrey, certainly, uh, and there's been a lot of advocacy happening on behalf of Surrey School District and teachers as well. Um, and so, you know, this, this is good news, but it shouldn't take this level of advocacy to put a mask mandate in place. Yeah, do you think that's what the difference was, that you had the Surrey School District asking for uh, the, the, the ability to do this? I think that made a big difference. And, you know, clearly... The numbers in Surrey have been concerning for some time. So this, you know, it's unfortunate that we're waiting so long um, to put these preventative measures in place. But this is something that needs to be in place in other places as well. We'd like to see it across the board. Um, And, you know, and we think there is a lot of cause for concern right now. We're returning from spring break today in most places, not everywhere. Um, and, you know, we, we are concerned that we're going to see this week some, you know, in the next week, uh, some really concerning numbers. And so why we're not erring on the side of prevention, you know, is something that is still, right. you know, remains a bit of a mystery. I do wonder that as well. So, you know, BCTF has been advocating, Surrey School District advocating. Why aren't other districts advocating? For instance, why isn't the Vancouver School Board advocating? Like, has BCTF tried to work with them as well? We'd like to see that happening. We'd like to see school trustees step up and uh, really do some advocacy as well. Uh, you know, we, we certainly would welcome that. Uh, so far, we've been the lone voice in terms of, uh, of calling for these mask mandates, and we think it's about time that we were joined. We know that, you know, families are also concerned, and many of them are already imposing a mask mandate of their own for their own children, and that's great. Um, and I certainly hope that... Uh, you know, the folks that families really heed the uh, encouragement that, that we're hearing from the order in Surrey and that K to kindergarten to grade three students also wear masks. The order itself is, is really strong and clear and good um, and needs to be expanded. So uh, given what we're facing here in the next couple of weeks, you know, it's going to be a very tense situation. What are you hearing from teachers about the return from spring break? Well, there's a lot of concern. And, you know, it's good to see that, you know, vaccinations are happening uh, in Surrey. That, that's good. I, again, you know, we have teachers that are going to be booking their vaccinations more broadly in April. That's good. Um, but in the meantime, we can't let up on the preventative measures. And so we, we strongly, you know, are encouraging families upon, you know, their children returning today that they wear masks. Um, uh, it's unfortunate that we don't, you know, have a stronger, uh, a strong mask mandate across the province. That's what really needs to happen right now because we have places like Prince Rupert and the Hazleton and different areas where, you know, there are places outside of the Fraser Health Authority and the Vancouver Coastal uh, Health Authority as well, where, you know, we're seeing really concerning numbers also. Okay, so then moving forward, then what is your advice to teachers who aren't necessarily in the Surrey School District? 
So everyone needs to remain vigilant. Uh, you know, already teachers and, and support staff and administration need to wear masks, and I, and I know that's happening. Um, and, you know, we're still encouraging students to wear masks, uh, encouraging families to send their children, you know, with masks, encourage them to wear masks. So we're all trying to work together on this. Um, it would be great if we saw, uh, you know, today an uh, announcement that the order will extend, you know, broadly across the province. There's no harm, certainly, in that. And this order shows that <laughs> children can wear masks. And, you know, that seems to have been a concern before. Now with that we have the uh, order in Surrey. There's no reason not to expand it, especially in this current environment. So the thought is that later today, one o'clock, with the press conference, premier, the premier, the health minister, Dr. Bonnie Henry, that there will be some restrictions or you know something coming along those lines. Would that surprise you if that happened? Well, I you know I certainly hope that they take this opportunity to expand the mask mandate. Um, I, it wouldn't surprise me if there were more restrictions announced. Uh, the numbers that we're seeing are really concerning. And, you know, BC is no no longer doing great in comparison to the rest of Canada, as we've been hearing for so long. Um, We need to up those, uh, the preventative measures. We're in a pretty dangerous time right now between, you know, the variants of concern um, and vaccinations. And, you know, we need to continue to be vigilant, and that includes our school system. Lots of work to do. All right. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks a lot, Simi. That is Terry Mooring, the president of the BC Teachers Federation, talking about the changes in Surrey today. So if you are a parent, if you're in the Surrey School District, uh, rules for wearing masks have changed as of today. And that is students in that district, grades four and up, are now required to wear masks in schools. That's even when they're walking down the hall. You're in school, you wear a mask.